Wait, are you going to edit this into the beginning? I have no idea. <laughs> He's totally going to do that. There's no other way. <laughs> yeah, this is a very yeah. professional. Okay, hi, I'm Charlie. I'm Oz. This is the Escaping Web podcast, which is which is about escaping routine web development. Yeah, exactly. We're here with Richie. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah. I sh- I mean I should int- yeah, I'll introduce you as well. We're here with Richie. <laughs> <laughs> You're just making the editing job harder yeah, for you. I know. And actually I'm just so... probably gonna leave it off. Richie, who are you? Um what what state your name and occupation? God, I'm just doing this so bad. <laughs> I think it's good. Uh, my name is Richie. Um, I'm a software engineer uh, working on uh, Uber's open source distributed time series database and 3DB. All right. So, do you have? Did I give you enough context for this conversation? I think you said you were going to ask me some questions about my career. So. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Uh, depending on what you plan on asking me, I may or may not have enough context. Okay. What did you have for lunch today? Let's start with that. Uh, I had some roasted chicken and beef. We got a new caterer. It's pretty good. I hear it's pretty cushy over there, dude. So I actually got moved to a WeWork, oh. which is kind of hilarious because we ran out of office space at the main office. Um, but I think they're trying to be extra nice to make us feel better and they got a new caterer so i can't complain that's not bad what yeah. um for the for the folks listening in what uh what team are you working on over there um i'm currently on a uh storage team called m3db um it's a, a bit of a weird situation because um basically we like kind of develop and operate a time series database uh that's open source called m3db um the database was originally designed for like metrics workloads. So um, if you'd asked me like a few months ago, I would have said I was on the M3 team and just happened to be working on the database. Uh, but now we've kind of moved uh, it out into its own project under the storage organization. So that's kind of where I'm at. That's cool. So uh, it's a relatively rare uh, experience to be able to work on a a, a database management system from from scratch. What was the motivation for you guys to build a, a custom database? Sure, I'm gonna kind of a little bit parrot um, some of the things I've heard. Uh, I I've talked about it before, but I, I also joined the team about. I mean, I guess at this point it's been two years, but we've been running the database in production for like three and a half. So I wasn't uh, there quite at the ground floor. Uh, when they started writing it, although I have like rewritten uh, fairly significant portions of the storage engine at this point. Um, But basically um, Uber's metric stack kind of evolved over time. Uh, And if if you're familiar, we started off with like kind of like a graphite and whisper DB stack, um, which was fairly common, like, you know, six or eight years ago, whenever it was set up. Um, And uh, that, those that system doesn't really have any clustering built in. Uh, so scaling that out was really challenging. And then whenever they wanted to do, you know, expand the cluster or replace a dead hardware or something like that, um, you basically had to take the whole system down for 30 minutes, um, which is absolutely brutal. If, uh, is having no visibility into your applications for 30 minutes. Um, 
So that system was kind of eventually ripped out and replaced with a system backed by Cassandra. Um, so kind of didn't make any of the users rewrite any of their clients uh, or change their applications, but kind of ripped out the storage engine under the hood and replaced it with Cassandra. Um, just so, you know, you know, Cassandra is distributed by nature and it's a lot easier to add and remove nodes and explain clusters and, you know, it has replication built in and all that type of stuff. Um, uh, but the kind of like metrics workload, um, it's very specialized. It's like very, very, very write heavy um, and read infrequent compared to like raw amount of data you're storing. Um, and at least at the time, uh, Cassandra didn't do um, time series compression very efficiently. Um, so basically, uh, I think there was one point where the team was operating like an 1800 node uh, Cassandra cluster. Uh, not one cluster, it's like they basically had many different clusters and you had to do application layer sharding in front of the different clusters, uh, which kind of takes you back to the original problem of having a non-clustered database. Um, so M3D was just kind of designed to be um, just like very efficient at this type of workload and support really, really, really kind of easy brain dead um, operational stuff uh, like add nodes, removes and replaces, just making that stuff kind of as easy and painless as possible. Um, and they were you know, able to do that in like a relatively short amount of time just because it's not as general purpose a database as Cassandra is. And where did you come into the picture here after M3 had kind of kicked off? Yeah, so the, the M3 team has been around for a while, um, kind of, you know, supporting Uber's like metrics needs uh, for like years at this point. Um, I joined, I want to say about two years ago now. It's getting close to being two years since I've been in New York because uh, I basically moved to New York to join this team. Um, and I joined basically... A few months after they had deployed their first M3DB cluster and replaced an existing Cassandra cluster, um, so that, and that they so at the time they basically had two clusters per region. They had one for storing data for like two days, and one for storing data for four days. Um, and they had replaced the two-day cluster, which was the most expensive one at the time, with M3DB. Uh, and M3DB was just kind of like chugging along. Um, and it, it's just kind of funny um, thinking back to like, I remember joining and being like really impressed uh, with the database. And then like the more you work on something and the more you get into the internals uh, and just discovering bugs and stuff over the two years I've been there, just being uh, just in re realizing where it is now, looking back two years and seeing how far it's come along since then. Um, there are so no bugs gonna... anymore, right? After the no, 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 Redux experience. <laughs> It's uh, it's now perfect. I, I definitely didn't introduce any bugs last week or anything like that. <laughs> well, that is that why you open sourced it just to get help from others, maybe? <laughs> Honestly, I really, really wish it worked that way. Uh, <laughs> as we, as far as I can tell, like, so the nice thing about having open source users is you definitely like, you definitely find more bugs because people just like do strange and surprising things that you wouldn't expect them to, and you know, their workloads just look different than yours and exposes um, kind of edge cases or just like faults in your design or things that are inefficient, um, which sometimes really cool just because like someone may discover something that you would have run into into a few months and, you know, it happened in their cluster and not yours. Um, but we don't actually get a ton of contributions, at least we didn't for the first year. And I'd say it's only with, probably within the last three months that like, a small number of people have really been like started digging in 
in the community and, and contributing back. So it, I guess that kind of takes a while. I was surprised so, by that. So Richie, I was wondering, like, it wasn't open source before you joined because I'd love this sort of like origin tale of you make a really great open source contribution and the team thinks it's so fantastic that they're like, move across the country, join the team right now. I'm taking that. Uh, I'm assuming that didn't happen here. Uh, oh, like how I ended up joining? Yeah, so, yeah. Well, the, the database was open source uh, since the beginning. Um, but just because it's on GitHub doesn't mean it's like really open source. It's like technically the source code was there, but um, there was no documentation, no sample config files, no tooling for doing any of the regular operations. Um, so all the code was developed in open source uh, for a long time, which is kind of nice, even if no one can use it, just because it forces you to not rely on any internal technology, if that makes sense. Um, if we'd kind of built it closed source, we probably would have had a lot of dependencies on Uber specific stuff, um, which would have made it really hard to open source. Um, for example, M3DB, sorry, just interrupt me at any point, uh, but M3DB uses um, etcd for kind of uh, strongly consistent configuration management. Um, Uber, uh, at the time at least, um, was a big user of Zookeeper. Um, we now run like Zookeeper and etcd internally, but probably um, if M3DB had been uh, designed in-house, it would have been uh, designed on Zookeeper and it probably would have gone through some you know, internal storage gateway or whatever it is. Um, so developing it in the open from the beginning, even if no one else was using it, was kind of valuable in that sense. Um, but no, I, I joined the team because um, I was looking around for a new team was pretty bored of doing what I was doing. I was on the external API team. You were at Uber doing, previously here in San Francisco? Yeah, I was in the San Francisco office. I'd been at Uber for like two years at the time. Um, external API team the whole time. Got to do a couple interesting things, but a lot of it kind of boiled down to uh, putting data in the database or out of the database and then transforming data from one service to another. Um, so I was kind of shopping around for some more interesting work. Uh, and I'd taken, um, a lot of Oz's classes at Bradfield. Um, so I'd kind of laid down some of the computer science fundamentals. And then, um, I saw the two main kind of authors of M3DB speak, um, at like a, uh, like in-house tech talk. Uh, they were, happened to be in San Francisco, so they did a tech talk. And I was just kind of blown away by it. Um, so I asked if they were hiring and then basically flew out to New York for three days to work on like a sample project, get to know the team, see if it was a good fit. And then um, I basically was just very, very, very impressed with the caliber of engineer on the team. And I was just like, I have to go work with these people. Um, so I did. What, uh, what was that project? This is like a really a three day interview, right? They they were not like just they were not trying to necessarily court you onto the team. They they were legitimately vetting you, right? For those three uh, days. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, they were yeah, they definitely acted like it wasn't an interview, and it was more for me to see if I I liked the project and get into the team. But yeah, I, I mean, it was definitely an interview. Um, and yeah, I guess. Uh, so the database has a commit log, like pretty much every other database. Um, but in most cases, uh, they weren't relying on it at the time. When a node came down and came back up, uh, instead of reading its own commit log, it would just stream the compressed data from its peers. Um, 
and they'd had like some disaster scenario where I think maybe they lost power to the entire data center. Um, so basically all the nodes went down simultaneously. They all came back up at the same time. Um, and obviously none of them had the data um, because they'd all been down. Um, so they basically changed the operation to run from the commit log uh, and it just took forever. Um, I think it took so long that they, at the time, just had to kind of give up on the on the last, like whatever, one hour of data and just move on. Um, so they brought me in and asked me to see if I could make the commit log bootstrapper. Well, one, figure out why it was so slow and two, see if I could make it faster. Um, so that's what I worked on for the next um, three days. And I remember it being kind of funny because I had just taken uh, the database classes uh, with uh, at Bradfield. And like one of the big things we talked about in that class was like the iterator pattern and how it's like really common in databases to use like iterators and stuff and how, you know, they're, they're like this nice interface that you can use to combine things. And if you have an iterator, it doesn't matter if the data is coming over the network or over the disk or if it has to do a, a sort internally or whatever it is. Um, and uh, I'm sure for a lot of like uh, people listening, like the concept of an iterator and using them in that way is not like, uh, novel in any respect, but at, at the time when I took that class, it was. Uh, and I remember jumping into the M3DB code base and just seeing like iterators everywhere and being like, oh, I, I know about these and I know why they're useful and why it works this way. This is um, such an annoying commercial for that class. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, uh, I just, I probably wouldn't have ended up on this team if I hadn't. So, wow. yeah. so when, when they gave you that problem, um, obviously you were, interested in them you were blown away by them like technically were you at all worried about the problem that they were going to give you like i'm just curious about your your mental state and you know thinking about that class and then you see this problem and you see it exactly matches this pattern you just saw and you're like oh my god yes or yeah what was your mental state going into this what were you open-minded were you were you worried how are you feeling yeah it's um that's interesting i guess i hadn't put a ton of thought into that um I remember being like, yeah, definitely like some level of excitement at first being like, oh, okay, I know why this looks this way. I know how to trace this code. Like this thing has an iterator, which, you know, calls into another iterator and being able to like kind of like quickly trace the code to see how some of it fit together. Um, there was some amount of like, I mean, a little bit like being over my head uh, or overwhelmed. Um, but the team was pretty good about giving me basically like a reproducible benchmark I could run over and over again. Um, and then I'd, I'd written an image processing service like a month or two prior. Uh, so I'd had some experience using like PProf and flame graphs to like optimize code. Um, so I had like an idea of where to start. Um, but I was basically just like, I have three days to prove myself and I really want to do this. So I just, um, I don't know. I didn't focus too much on, uh, being out of my depth, I guess, and kind of just tried to focus on the problem. That, that was a good mental trick that you played because it seems like you, objectively speaking, were actually out of your depth. I mean, at this point, you had two years of professional experience. Uh, you came from a boot camp background. What was the kind of um, uh, typical experience of someone who was already on the team? What was the, the typical background? Um, a lot of distributed systems experience. Uh not necessarily a ton of storage experience for better or for worse. Um, so not a lot of people who'd built databases from the ground up or anything like that, but a lot of people who had a ton of experience 
Um, so, I mean, even forgetting what they did before, uh, you know, one of the, the guys, Rob Skellington had been on the M3 team, I think for three or four years. And at that time, already at the time, um, and that like M3, like infrastructure was handling, you know, hundreds of millions of data points per second pre-aggregation and, you know, tens of millions of data points per second post-aggregation, I think. Uh, so they all had a lot of experience operating kind of like large scale and like clustered things. Um, most, most of them had real CS degrees uh, and a lot more experience than I did. Um, yeah, I mean, I I felt a little bit out of my, I guess I, I felt a little bit out of my league pretty much since day one at Uber. Um, you know, it was, it was my first programming job. I remember I joined my team um, and uh, I don't know, I think we were at lunch or something and everyone was talking about, I don't know, they were reminiscing about like the dorms at MIT or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, what the fuck am I doing here? Um, you know, I got a biochemistry degree from a party school. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I like was one of the best people on my first team within, I think a year of joining. Um, and, uh, when I joined this new team, I think I was just kind of psyched to be around people who were better than me, um, like a lot better than me. Um, and I, I tried not to think about, you know, my lack of expertise too much. Um, I, I think it was about six months to a year after I switched teams before the manager, uh, finally like found out because I brought it up offhand that I didn't have a computer science degree. So I kind of got it. Did you have to have a sit down discussion about that? <laughs> no, no, we were just talking about it offhand. And I mentioned not having one. Uh, and he was like, wait, what? Like you went to a boot camp?" And I was like, nice. Yes. Uh, six months in and they still have not uh, whatever that meme is. Uh, we're missing a meme here. Yeah, I man. can't remember what it is. It's like, you know, six months went in and they still haven't realized I'm not one of them or something like that. <laughs> well, I think um, there's like with most jobs and programming is like no exception. I found and I've, I've done a bunch of different jobs, too. But like the first three to six months, you're sort of figuring it out. How do I do my job? And there's some sort of like career satisfaction associated with like figuring out the ropes. But then it's that six month mark when you kind of lift your head above the sand or clouds or whatever the appropriate metaphor is. And you try to like, oh, do I actually like what I'm doing here? Um, and it seems like you've done it. You did a good job of continuing to like add to your like core CS knowledge was, and I'd like to hear more about like your approach. Like, how are you thinking about, okay, if I'm starting to get bored here, where should I be looking next? And like one answer is like, oh, I'll just kind of like generally look at everything and then boost my knowledge. And hopefully something will strike out at me. Like, what were you thinking? Um, I I guess at what point are we talking? Are we talking about before I joined the M3 DB team while I was on it or pre M3? So you're, let's say you're like six months into the external API team. You've like realized, okay, I can do this. I'm doing a good job. And then maybe you're starting to get bored. It's kind of funny. It's like, as soon as I finished bootcamp, I think I was, what is, what is the graph where it's like the, there's like the, um, like you don't actually know anything, but you think you know everything. So like as as soon as I finished boot camp, I was like at the peak of that. I was like, oh, I can build anything. I know what I'm doing. Blah blah blah. Um, and then you know I worked through like Nanta Tetris uh, and some other kind of more computer sciencey stuff before I started uh, my first job. And like very quickly realized like, oh my god, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> um, 
and I think that uh, that feeling has just kind of persisted um, through most of my career, and I, I, I try to nurture it to some degree. Um, so I think I kind of spent the first six months on the external API team, I mean, just treading water. I mean, I was probably working 12 hours a day for the first six months just because I felt like I had so much to prove and I kind of felt out of place a little bit. Um, even though I was performing just fine, you know, I just kind of had that. That's uh, what I'm saying. It's that like six month, three to six month anxiety. Like, am I doing yeah. a good job? They're going to find out I'm a fraud, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. For, so for those six months, I like, I basically just used that anxiety to like motivate myself and focus mostly on work because honestly, there was tons of stuff at work that I didn't know. And I was learning constantly. Um, and then around the six month mark, I think I kind of started to hit, um, some hard lines in terms of like, uh, my growth on the external API team. Like there's only so much you can learn about, you know, given Python framework and different ways to structure uh, a backend application and all that type of stuff. Um, and I don't know, I just always knew I was missing a lot of core CS knowledge. I mean, it'd come up in like every once in a while you'd run into it when you have to deal with like the kernel or the like the network uh, in any capacity other than just like serializing JSON back and forth, uh, or you're just talking to other people. And honestly, even just like, you know, at most large companies, there's kind of these like large design documents that get floated back and forth as people start new projects. And, you know, I, I always read through them and see these like kind of like large scale, interesting infrastructure projects. And I'd read through them and they'd always be super interesting. And I'd be like, I would have no idea how to accomplish any of this. And <laughs> how did they make these decisions? And, all this type of stuff. You just draw a bunch of boxes and put lines between them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, pro tip. Um, and yeah, I was, I don't know, I was friends with Oz and Miles at the time and been hanging out with them once a week uh, to kind of like talk computer science stuff. Um, and I think at some point um, I just decided uh, to just start taking their classes. Again, I'm really trying not to just turn this into an ad bad field. <laughs> But it, it was pretty kind of instrumental for me in my in my growth. Um, so, so what, what are the like areas that you studied like outside of work? Networking, databases. Did you like try to just run through the full gamut of uh, like what a computer science degree would be? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of how the curriculum there uh, is structured. Although the classes are only three weeks, so it's like the three in the three weeks you'll you'll kind of like see what the landscape of that particular. So like there's a networking class and a database class and an operating system class and each of those are three weeks. Um, We're actually so at six weeks now, Richie. So you really? should be impressed that you managed to cover everything in three weeks. Yeah, oh. we've been, Is it still nine hours a week? Uh, what are we, six hours a week, yeah. Okay, I think that's probably a good move. Uh, I think at one point I had a job and I was taking two or three of the classes at once, uh, which meant I never did the reading, um, but I still learned a lot just listening yeah, to- It finally uh, comes out. Uh, still listening to Oz and Miles. Um, but actually, I think one of the biggest things I took away from those classes is that um, I think before I took the classes, I spent a lot of time trying to learn by like searching on Google and reading blog posts. Um, turns out that's like a really terrible way to learn computer science fundamentals. Um, and I think probably one of my biggest takeaways from the classes was just like, like it's you don't really realize this if you don't have a computer science degree, but you're like, Oh, people actually go to school for four years to learn this stuff. And like, surprise, they have books and you can order them. Um, so just like, 
realizing I could just order computer science textbooks actually was like a huge one for me. Um, do you find like, how do you feel with textbooks? Do you find you can work through them start to finish? Do you dive in and dive out? Like I've got plenty of textbooks that are in my queue and sometimes the textbook is great. And it's like, it's also like can be intimidating to think I have to sit through and do all the problem sets, work through chapters one to 30. Like, is that an effective learning tool for you? Really? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I almost never do the problem sets if I'm being honest. Um, so, and there's kind of like two modes, I guess I'll buy textbooks in. One is just like, and you know, at some point in my career, I was like, I know almost nothing about operating systems. Um, I took the Bradfield class, but I didn't actually have time to do all the readings. So I'm just going to like try and read a chapter a day of this textbook. Um, and if you have the right textbook that can actually be pretty tolerable, um, Especially if, like, I, I mean, I think that literature is actually, like, fairly interesting, especially if it's not, like, you know, like, PhD level where it, like, focuses on, like, the, you know, 3% improvement you get from this one specific scheduling algorithm. And it's kind of like a holistic, like, here's what operating systems look like. Um, I think the book from the Bradfield class is, like, operating systems in three easy pieces or something. And that book's actually, like, almost feels like a light read. Um the other one is just like sometimes I'll just buy a book because it's relevant to a problem I'm dealing with. Um, so like I work on, you know, M3DB, which is a time series database. Um, I had to work on some like custom compression stuff recently. Um, so I just bought like the compression book uh, and kind of, you know, skimmed through it, reading, like getting a lay of the land for all the different algorithms and all the different types of uh, compression models there are and like what the difference is between all these variants. Um, and that's also like a really easy way, uh, to kind of motivate yourself through a textbook is if you have like a problem you're trying to solve. What is it? Is it like rubber duck typing too, when you just have like a talisman on your desk and you, it's like almost like, like you're debugging something and you're walking through it and you're just the act of explaining it out loud solves the problem for you. I can almost imagine like just buying these books, the compression book, having it on your desk and just like asking it like, I know the answer's in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, yeah. it's totally true. It's it's super helpful to have. I mean, one, it just kind of builds confidence. Like you're not, at some point you're just like, okay, like I read the textbook. Like I'm not just making stuff up here. Like mm -hmm. I have a vague idea of what quote unquote the state of the art is and what people do and don't know. Um, but yeah, also it's just like, yeah, it, it definitely is just really nice to, be working on a problem and have like a tomb next tome next to you. That's just like contains, you know, like the guts and gores that you would need. Um, I thought another yeah. interesting takeaway there is just, um, Oz, you, you encourage people to just be reading important papers, mm -hmm. like important historical papers or like try to stay up to date with like what's coming out now. And I think for me coming into the industry, I'd like, I sort of, Never would have. I didn't expect that, and I didn't expect that, that, that to paper be. Paper would be relevant. To I, I, yeah, I uh, I wrote a lot of papers in my history degree. None of them are relevant for anyone to read. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> that's another thing entirely. Well, yeah. One of my favorite examples of this, maybe Richie, you can relate to this as well, is that uh, for every one person who has read the Dynamo paper, there are probably a thousand or ten thousand who use one of the Dynamo family of uh, databases in Cassandra, React, Voldemort, et cetera. And uh, a very large proportion of those people misuse uh, that, that technology and you know, should maybe be using something entirely else or could be using it, but using it in, in a different way. And literally within the first few paragraphs of the Dynamo paper, 
you understand why Amazon designed it, what their design constraints were, like what it compromises in order to achieve what it achieves. It's it's sitting there like in plain English with you know, very little prior background in uh, um, in databases required to understand it. It seems like such an easy win to just read the paper. Like it's such a competitive advantage for that you know point one or point oh one uh, percent of people who who go and do it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, and I think. I don't know if, if you're doing any kind of like backend or web development stuff, uh, like the database is almost, it's like, like almost like the most important part. You know what I mean? Like everything else is just kind of cruft around getting data in and out of the database in the right format. Um, and it's kind of funny, but there's like, there's only so many different storage engine designs that are out there for database systems. Uh, so these days, like whenever I hear about a new database, like I don't care at all about the benchmarks or the features they're advertising or the query language or anything. Like the first thing I want to know is like, what is the architecture of the storage engine? Because that tells you so much more about like how that database is going to behave and what it'll be good at and what it'll be bad at than just, you know, trying to read whatever crap they put on their marketing website. So, you know, obviously this is... Uh, a, a point I make over and over again, but um, I, I, what I'm beginning to realize is that the one of the reasons I'm not taken seriously when I say this uh, is is <laughs> is that people overestimate the difficulty of actually doing this, of like reading a reading it, working from a textbook or reading a paper and getting to a first principles understanding, but. Uh, you know, your, your kind of evidence that this is doable in a relatively short amount of time, right? Not to downplay the amount of experience you have, but probably when people are, th- are thinking, how long does it take to go from, uh, you know, fresh out of a boot camp to uh, understands databases fundamentally enough to work on a very important one kind of from scratch, uh, they, would, they would anticipate that this is like a lifetime's work, that you become a specialist over at least, you know, 10 years or 10,000 hours or something, but probably even more. Whereas for you, it was a, it was a kind of straightforward you know, months to to year or two-ish process, would you say? Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that people totally overestimate how complicated it is. Um, once you get into kind of like the nuts and bolts of these things, it's like each individual component is usually not that complicated. Um, and usually if it's very complicated, it's only because like that particular component has been developed over 20 years and like, you know, it's just a lot of time has gone into it. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't think those timelines are that far off. Um, I'm trying to think of what my timelines look like. Uh, yeah. So I'd say about when I switched to the M3 team, I basically had no experience with like high throughput or high scale systems. Uh, so like None of the services I worked on at Uber did more than like a few hundred or a few thousand requests per second. Um, and all the complexity of doing that was like abstracted away from me, right? I just created my Docker image and said how many instances I wanted to run on it. And some other team made sure it was scheduled for me. Um, and any databases I used were kind of managed as a service. And then, um, yeah, and then I went directly to working on uh the storage engine of M3DB. I mean, of course I had a, like a ton of guidance and like mentorship. I, and I'd almost say like, I feel like that's more important than 
anything else. Like the, the self-study, I think, is important to give yourself probably the opportunities. Like I was able to join this team because I had like sat down and laid a lot of laid down a lot of the fundamental uh, CS knowledge that I needed to, you know, have a conversation with these people and not sound like I had no idea what I was talking about. Um, but I think kind of surround yourself with people who are like smarter than you and better than you. It just, um, it just amplifies the speed at which you can learn something like a new skill, um, like a lot. Um, and I, I'd almost say that's like maybe one of the most important, um, most important things you can do is just find good, uh, mentors. Um, I, I kind of look back at like my kind of short, you know, software engineering career. And I've had, uh, really strong te- technical mentors at different phases. And, you know, the, depending on the phase I was at, my, my mentors were different people, but I've always had really strong ones. And I think that's really helped me a lot. So a, a question I get all the time is how do you actually do that at a company? Like you, you've just joined company X. Uh, how do you firstly identify people who could be mentors? And then secondly, actually establish that, that relationship. Do you have any insight there? Uh, Was it like an intentional yeah. process for you? Or, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, when I joined my first team, I was basically just like so stoked. A company I'd heard of was ready to offer me a job. I like fell over backwards to accept and like, you know, wasn't thinking super, you know, concretely about like, is this the best team to join? Or are these the best people to work with? Uh, it turned out to be a really good team of people and I, I grew really rapidly. Um, but I don't have any advice there. Um, but once I reached the point where I felt like I'd plateaued on that team, um, I was given the opportunity to kind of take on more of like a technical leadership role. You know, some people were quitting and we were hiring new people and my manager was basically like, Oh, you know, if you stay, you'll be, you could become like the tech lead pretty soon and all that type of stuff. Um, and that basically really worried me because I knew I still had like a ton to learn. Um, so I, the kind of the nice thing about being, I think, at a big company is that it's way easier to transfer teams usually than it is to convince someone to hire you. Um, so I think maybe if I'd interviewed with the M3 team, I'm not sure if I would have gotten the role. Um, maybe they would have offered me the job. I'm not sure. Um, but there's just so much less risk associated with an internal transfer that if you're already in a company, I would just look around for any people or teams doing interesting work and just find a way to get over there, if that makes sense. Um, so I interviewed with like 15 different teams um, at Uber, like talking to different managers, asking about what I'd be doing, what my role would be, uh, meeting with different engineers and like, uh, you know, trying to guess if they would make good mentors or not. Um, and I remember being really frustrated because it just like nothing seemed like a good fit. And then I met the M3 team and it was just like a 10 out of 10 on like kind of all of the internal criteria I had. Um, so I, I guess if you're at a company um, that's big enough that you can do that, I would definitely take advantage of that. Okay, that's interesting. So you were sort of running a process internally, poking your head around, trying to see like where can I, where would I grow the most? Where could I get the most guidance? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I had no interest in moving to New York. Um, like I just really didn't like, I, not that I love San Francisco, but it's just like, I had a ton of friends in San Francisco and I knew no one in New York. Um, but I was just like, this team and opportunity just seems like 
a cut above the rest. And like, if I have the opportunity to go do this, I should just go do it. So to the, going back to Oz's question about the, the mentors, it feels like an easy way to get a mentor potentially is to have a really great manager or a really great tech lead. And you just sort of get it by default. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering like, do you, have you had mentors Oz, you too with this, but uh, who like might cut across teams? Like, is that possible to sort of like, because then that's where it might get into the question of like, oh my God, I might actually have to ask this person to coach me. And um, I, I would think like one way to get that is to like do something impressive or do something that gets you noticed such that someone wants to talk to you. But have you had any mentors that might be on like entirely different teams or has it been kind of the ones that are most close to you? Yeah. Um, I guess it, it's interesting because like, I think Oz and Miles um, were like my like most direct mentors uh, maybe like two or three years ago. And I didn't work with them professionally. So I like, I didn't sit next to them all day. Um, and I actually got a ton out of that relationship. Um, but I've also had mentors at Uber. Um, and I'm also, you know, I, I am currently mentoring, um, someone who's on a different team. And the, if you're not working on the same stuff, I'm not sure why it works so well with Oz and Miles. Um, maybe just because they're better teachers than most. Um, I think maybe it was also kind of like the style of the mentorship. We, they would just kind of sit down with me for a few hours and be like, Hey, I want to work through this one problem or this bit of material with you and see how things goes. Whereas, um, you know, if you're at a large company and you find a mentor on another team, uh, as far as I can tell, a lot of it tends to be focused on that person helping you figure out what you need to do to get promoted. And they might help you navigate some like internal organizational politics, um, and that type of stuff. But it's, it's pretty hard to beat having a person that you work with most of the day who's kind of in the trenches with you, working on the same problem as you. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just really kind of intimately familiar with the work that you're doing and, you know, reviewing your code even. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm not saying you couldn't find a good mentor who's on a different team. I just, in, in my experience, it's been the people I've worked with that have had the most direct impact. Um, So how do you feel now that you're like two years in, is it two years into M3 right now? Um, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, not to give your, give away your spot, but is are you in a place where you're like starting to get itchy feet again? Or are you fully satisfied? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully your, hopefully your mentor isn't listening to this right now. Well, obviously, yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I'm still having a lot of fun. Um, especially, I think maybe if M3DB was still kind of just like the database we're using for like storing metrics for observability workloads, um, I might be getting a little sick of things at this point. Um, but since it was moved under the storage organization, um, we basically have like an entirely new charter. Um, so I've gotten to like work, design and build like a lot of really interesting stuff over the last six months. Um, so I've worked on basically uh, adding complex type support to M3DB. So it used to just store kind of like floats and now we can store like complex types, um, floats, integers, strings, all that stuff and still kind of compress it efficiently. Um, so getting to like kind of redesign a storage engine that was very much not designed to do that um, after the fact was like a really interesting challenge. Um, 
right now I'm working on adding like basically cross-region replication, uh, trying to figure out how to handle that while still maintaining consistency guarantees. Um, so I guess like I can see a world in which I've been working on an interesting project for two years and being really bored. Um, but that's currently I'm still pretty satisfied with the, the work I'm doing right now. Good. We'll report that back to your manager. Um, <laughs> you can tell us the real answer when we, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, um, yeah, I'll, I'll send you an email. Okay. You know, spinning, uh, spinning this a little bit, like one of the things that at least caught my attention was the blog post you put out on the Uber engineering blog about some of the work you'd done uh, on the M3 team. And without really going into that, like, uh, it seems like you uh, were really into like writing and documenting the entire thing. Like how much is like writing this blog post or others been important to your growth and learning? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I think, I think being good at communicating your like your thoughts in written form um, is like super important uh, to being like a good software engineer. Not even necessarily to being a good software engineer, but to kind of like having the type of impact that you want. Um, if you can't really like write things well or kind of make your point in written form, you're gonna have a hard time kind of getting your thought out there and like influencing things. If that makes sense. Um, and I always knew like my, my writing was kind of a weak spot for me. Um, so I, I kind of very intentionally uh, worked on like practicing that and developing that, um, which is cool. Cause like, you know, if I write a blog post for Uber, then I get like a team of professional editors that like review it and tell me what to fix, uh, which is really good practice. Um, but at the same time, it's like, um, I mean, war stories are always super interesting. Like, I, you know, I love watching like YouTube videos or reading blog posts where people had to diagnose them crazy obscene problem that like you would have never thought or known how to figure out. Um, so when you get one of those uh, yourself, you just, you know, it's just a good story you want to tell people. Is there anything you're working on now that's going to come out soon? Can we get like an advanced peak? Uh, yeah. Um, this is funny because I, I told you I have one coming out soon. You asked me loaded questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, the problem I did, I asked it again that way because I literally forgot what it was about. So I was hoping you would, I was trying to like softball it up for you, but thank you for blowing up my spot. Yeah, no worries. Uh, no, thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, I'm working on this blog post right now. Um, I don't have a good name for it. I, I like to give all my blog posts really clickbaity titles that make people angry. So they click on it. Um, and I haven't come up with one for this one yet. Uh, but basically, um, I got, if, if you never heard of, Foundation DB. Um, it's a uh, you know, distributed database that I think was started in like 2008, and then I think it sold in like 2012 for like 300 million dollars to Apple or something. Don't quote me on those dates. Um, and a lot of people, you know, said it was like one of the best like distributed databases ever built, uh, and then it kind of just disappeared into the ether after being um, acquired by Apple. And then uh, I think it was about a year ago now, they open sourced it, which was really exciting. And I'd been hearing a lot of buzz about it. Um, and I finally had the chance to meet someone who uh, was an expert on it, uh, Ryan Worrell. Um, and he kind of teased me that, you know, M3DB would be way better if it had just been built on top of FoundationDB. Because um, FoundationDB was kind of designed to be this, like, distributed database upon which you would build other databases. Uh, why it's called FoundationDB. Um so the blog post is me kind of just exploring whether or not it would have been possible um, to build M3DB on top of FoundationDB. 
um, if it had been like open source at the time. Um, and the, I did some benchmarking and some, some prototyping and, uh, the results I found were that it, it seems like pretty likely. Um, I didn't build obviously like a full replica, um, of M3DB, but I implemented prototypes of some of the most expensive things that M3DB has to do. Um, and it, it holds up surprisingly well. Um, so the blog post just kind of walks through that process and like how I came to, um, the design choices I did and the different things I tried that did and didn't work. And is this for Uber's blog or is this for like the launch of your own personal brand as a thought leader? <laughs> uh, I always wanted to be a thought leader. Yeah. Um, it begins no, this now. Is, uh, this is just for my own, under my own name. Okay. Cool. Well, I'll start thinking about titles for you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. If I'm listening to a lot of things that's, that have made you successful, it's doing this textbook work, taking these like two courses at once, doing a lot of projects off hours. Like um, I might be the pessimistic take here and say, okay, Richie is just like, he lives and breathes programming. This is all he does. Um, <laughs> do you have other hobbies and interests? And like, can you just paint a, can you paint a more well-rounded picture of yourself for the audience, please? Like what else are you into? <laughs> Lie. Uh, yeah, you can lie. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna lie a little bit. Uh, people don't need to know how weird I am. Yeah. Um. I, so, I, yeah, I would I would hesitate to call myself like super well rounded. Um. But I mean, I do like to do other stuff outside of programming. Um. I've only been doing that for like you know four and a half years. Um. So yeah, I mean, I I've always been uh pretty big on weightlifting. Um. So I do that a lot. Kind of like try to stay sane and do something with my body, uh, considering I sit way too much at work. Um, read a lot of like non-technical books, uh, try and find stuff that's to, you know, get out, get away from like the computer science textbooks every once in a while. Um, just like fiction stuff too is like really good. Um, I know I picked up jujitsu a few weeks ago. Um, Sweet. I, I don't want to say it's like a hobby yet because I'm like pretty new to it. Uh, but, you know, I've been going every day for a few weeks and I really like it. And I will probably, I see myself doing that long term. Um, where, where are you training? There's some good spots in you. I'm at the Renzo, Renzo Gracie gym. Do you do jujitsu as well? I do do jujitsu. Of course, of course you do. So this, this oh, place, that's... it's actually, I should, I should uh, help you out here. It's pronounced Henzo's. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, haven't, yeah. I haven't met him. I haven't met him. So yeah. Uh, the Henzo's is like the mecca for uh, jiu-jitsu. It's um, at least in New York, one of the top places to train. Uh, I mean, this won't make a lot of sense to people outside of it, but some of the like uh, absolute world-class athletes in the nogi variant of jiu-jitsu all train at Henzo's. So you're going to be in very good company over there. It's um, it's pretty funny. I actually live. Uh, less than a 10 minute walk away from Henzo and from Marcelo's. So I had like a very oh, hard yeah. to make. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's a lot of software engineers I found out that do jujitsu. It's kind of like rock climbing, I guess it, for whatever reason it attracts that personality. For sure. It's just absurdly complex. There's, there's probably a thousand <laughs> different named uh, positions or techniques. They all interplay. Uh, so you're constantly debugging this unnecessarily perhaps complex uh situation and then you figure it out and you get a little bit of endorphin rush from that and then and then there's some new problem yeah and then there's a new problem that's the 
that's what probably appeals to you as an infrastructure engineer, Richie, that there's constantly new problems that you're debugging. Or the outfits, I don't know. Those are sweet too. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both great. I, uh, uh, I, I see a spar match coming on. Can we get a, would you uh, guys? I don't want, I don't want to fight us. Down? No, I, I'm, I'm going to tap over the phone. Yeah, we should record that. <laughs> this is like uh, Darth Vader and Obi-Wan. <laughs> <laughs> um, funnily enough, I actually just, like my jujitsu textbooks, arrived today so i uh taking the same approach look i i will have one big question for richie and i'm I'm basically trying to channel the typical listener of this podcast and ask ask the one main question that they might have and i i think it comes down to your first year at uber so you said that within your first year you're one of the top performers on the team and uh if you if that's true, then the other things kind of fall into place, right? It becomes much easier for you to shop around and pick the best team and end up with good mentorship and uh, grow a lot. But then the question is, uh, how do you do that first thing? Because a lot of people arrive at Uber. A lot of people work hard at Uber. Uh, you said you work 12-hour days, but uh, a lot of people do that. You said you had uh, you know, a bit of a chip on your shoulder, something to prove, but a lot of people have that as well. A lot of people come with more background and potentially more, um, uh, you know, more in their toolkit, ready to prove themselves in that year. But uh, you managed to do that when a lot of people didn't. So my question is, what is the, what is the core thing that enabled you to do that? Or to put it another way, if you were to mentor someone who was starting day one at Uber or a similar company, and they wanted to achieve what you achieved in the in the first year. How would you help them do that? Oh man, uh, that's a really tough question. Um, I mean, I think we covered this a little bit already, but I I think like just like the re- like kind of like almost like a relentless desire um, to learn is like one of the biggest components and. Um, it ends up manifesting in like a bunch of different ways, but there are like a number of like projects and like tasks that I took on um, that no one really wanted to do, but I would like look at them and be like, Oh, this is going to be a huge pain in the ass, but I'm going to learn a lot if I can get it done. Um, and I think just generally speaking, like, like trying to learn as much as possible, um, not shy- not shying away from hard things. Like, so that's not to me, that doesn't mean like overcomplicate all of your projects and your infrastructure. Um, but, you know, don't be the person that always kind of shies away from hard problems and lets other people do them. Like you, sometimes you learn the most when you kind of, kind of dig in, roll your sleeves up, kind of get yourself into a situation that's really tough. And uh, you just have a problem that has to be solved one way or another. And you kind of have no choice but to deal with it. Um, what else? Uh Honestly, like, I hate saying this too, because it's like, like, you know, like, oh, like, do I also have to work on all this other stuff outside of work? Isn't it enough that I work all the time? Um, But I like, I did work on like a ton of side projects. So um, I guess don't tell my manager this, but like at various points, uh, I've been at Uber, I've had like, you know, at at one point I was getting really deep into like blockchain development just because I was curious about it. Um, and you know, 
wanted to just know more about it and how the technology works. I was like, I own all this Ethereum. I don't know how any of it works. Um, I built like a machine learning monitoring platform complete with like a React Native app and like a backend and all that stuff with some friends. Um, and it's like, if you have a lot of that stuff under your belt, it's like, sure, maybe you've only been working at your job for a year, but if you also tackled like three, you know, small to moderate sized projects outside of work, then it's like, actually, maybe you have like the equivalent of like two to three years of experience because you've kind of, you know, you get a lot out of the first few months of any project, right? So if you have a bunch of those under your belt, um, you'll have a lot more experience than it, it seems like you do. Um, it takes up, that takes up a lot of time though. So I, I, I wish I had an answer for you that also maintain work-life balance, but, um, that hasn't really been the case for me. So, Hey, as long as we can reliably discard work-life balance and get, get a decent outcome out of it, particularly if it's a, for a relatively short period of time in our early careers, then that's, that's not bad. That's I think a trade-off that a lot of people would make. Yeah. And I think just being curious and when you finish the boot camp and you're a year or so in, you have gained this like foundational knowledge to like take your curiosity and start to make something, even if it's incredibly crappy at first, which is really cool. So like when there is a topic like blockchain, like you have the, you might not know anything about it, but you have the powers now to dive in and start playing around. And you know, it seems like you'll be surprised by what you can figure out. And I think that's really important to remember. And like everyone kind of begins somewhere with this stuff. And um, I feel, I personally feel really lucky to, have enough programming um, chops under my belt to feel like I could potentially dive into any one of these things you've done as a side project, which is pretty neat. Yeah. And I think, I think Oz said this in class once and it kind of stuck with me. Uh, I think he was talking about um, Geohot. I think that's his screen name. I can't remember his, his, his real name. The guy who, uh, you know, I think he jailbroke. He was the first person to jailbreak the iPhone, the PS or the PlayStation, and then he started like a self-driving car company. Um, yeah, and you know, basically what I said was like, you know, yes, admittedly this guy is like very intelligent, uh, but also he knew almost nothing about machine learning and self-driving, and he went basically in the two-year span, uh, he went from basically knowing nothing to being pretty much on the cutting edge of that space. Um, and there's a lot of kind of sectors of software engineering and industries where, I mean, basically what you were saying, it's like people overestimate the difficulty, like within two years, if you're kind of like obsessive about learning something, you can be like very near to, um, kind of the cutting edge and not really that indistinguishable for someone who's been doing it for like 10 or 15 years. So then the the challenging question there, I'm just kind of curious of your, your view. Um, do you think that that's something that is innate or that can be encouraged and, and brought out of people, that like insatiable uh, curiosity and drive? Is this something that like you've got it or you don't? It's It's interesting. I... I don't know. I think, I don't think it's something like either, you know, if, if you're not that way by the time you're 16, then you're just not going to be that way or anything like that. Because I definitely wasn't like that when I was uh, younger and I had a couple of kind of like 
you know, minor life experiences that kind of shifted me from one camp to another. Um, I just, I wouldn't know how to bring it out in someone, if that makes sense. Um, like, I don't think if I had like an employee or a student or even like a friend, uh, who wasn't that way. And I wanted to encourage them to become that way. I don't know how I would do it. Um, but I definitely don't think it's something like either you have it or you don't. Um, a lot of it, I think, is about finding uh, the right motivation or the thing that actually interests you the most. Um, but I don't know. I mean, not also not everyone finds like there are a lot of software engineers that just don't find it, you know, nearly as exciting as some other people do. And, and that's fine, too. Uh, are you willing to share what those minor life experiences were that uh, switched you to the other track? Oh, yeah. I mean, no, nothing like super major, but um I I moved from Israel to the United States uh, when I was like 17, 16. Um, and in Israel, you know, I was in a class of like 30 students, basically. Um, so I was basically just, um, you know, basically always top of the class without really doing much. And then I moved to the United States, got dropped into a bunch of like uh, AP and advanced classes with you know, a bunch of kids uh, whose parents were, like, well-educated and been, like, grooming them to go to Harvard since they, like, or USC, basically, since they popped out. Um, and that was, like, a very jarring experience for me, just going from being, like, oh, I just don't have to do anything, and I'm, like, top of the class to, like, oh, my God, like, if I don't, like, work really hard, I'm going to get, like, absolutely crushed. Um, similarly, I was, uh, <laughs> it's kind of lame, but I was, like, pre-med pre -med in college, Uh if you know anything about pre-med students, they're like the absolute worst um, because all they care about is like their GPA and like getting all these like extracurricular hours on their resume. Um, and I, I mean, I think the main thing I kind of just took away from that was I just learned how to study like really hard. Um, and I think like I basically learned how to study really hard. at something I found like dreadfully boring. Um, and I think a lot of people are really interested in things and they find them kind of like interesting and fascinating and they want to learn about them. Um, but they just don't actually know how to like sit down and study something and learn it on their own. Um, so just having had to do that for something I found really boring. Now, if there's something that actually interests me, it's like, it's really not hard for me to come home from a day of work and spend an hour or two reading a textbook or, you know, doing some homework for an online class. Um, but if you've never really had to like study really hard or learn how to do that, like Studying and learning is a skill, I guess. And um, if you weren't kind of like forced to develop that skill, um, you know, it's something you have to, it's it's a skill that you have to learn. And I, I wouldn't know how to teach that exactly. Um, although I think going to like classes can really help. I think one of the nice things that I liked about taking your night classes was just like, basically like I signed up and I paid for it. So I had to go and show up for three hours. That's um, your accountability buddy, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Richie, I had another take on Oz's question about being successful in your first year. And I don't know if you saw this blog post by Julia Evans about the brag document where uh, she just outlines like things you can do to document the things you've accomplished over the year, putting it into different buckets, making it easy for your reviewers to look at this, whether it's your manager or your peers. What like Like what's your take on like, that side of things as it relates to succeeding in a company as large as Uber? Like, where do you, like, like, do you keep a brag document? Do you like, how do you, how do you think about like documenting the things you're working on? Obviously an awesome blog post 
uh, like you wrote is one way, but is there, is there like a practical, tangible thing you might do or you might suggest to people who are joining a large organization like that? Yeah. Um, especially at like large organizations, like visibility is like super important. Um, even just like, it kind of sucks, but even just whether or not like other people know or have heard of the project you're working on and think it's important ends up being kind of like a big deal. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't read the specific document or blog post you're talking about. Um, but yeah, my manager at one point made me keep in it like a, he called it an achievement stock. And basically like anytime I finished anything substantial or every few weeks, I would just go and write down like link to the PRs, like why, what I did, why I did it that way and what the impact was. Um, and you'd be really surprised at like how useful it is to have that when it comes time to, you know, put yourself a promotion or negotiate a raise or whatever it is, just having, you know, like a big document and be like, look at all the things I did. Um, so I would agree that's like a super good practice. Um, and yeah, I, you do have to find some way that people know what you're doing, the impact you're making and, um, kind of how valuable it is. Um, so, you know, you know, writing blog posts can be good. Just keeping an internal achievement stock that you can show to like a new manager. If you switch teams or you're shopping around for new teams, um, can be really useful. Um, my team did like brown bags. So like if someone worked on something like really interesting or impactful, or even if you just learn something new, um, you know, preparing like a 15 and 20 minute presentation and, uh, doing, giving that to like your team or your larger organization over lunch or something, uh, can be really valuable. Um, and just kind of generally communicating like what you're doing, what you're working on. Um, you know, if you finish like some big pain in the ass migration, like, you know, do a write up about all the things you had to do, like, uh, what, you know, performance or latency or bugs looked like before, or what it looks like after, um, you know, it's, it's okay to, you know, it's, it's okay to basically like celebrate your accomplishments and talk about them with, you know, people who are like close to your, you know, sphere of influence. Um, I mean, I think it's important if people don't know what you're doing or what you're working on, then, um, you know, you're not going to have the, the type of impact that you want. Yeah, no, I love that. That's more or less exactly the point of the post. And then like, it, it's even like you make one of these accomplishment stocks and then like, what do you do with it? And like, do you actually share it with your peer reviewers? And potentially that's like, oh, it's kind of embarrassing to do this, but no, that's like super helpful for them. It's like, obviously it's like, it's hard enough for you as an individual to go back and be like, what the heck did I work on last week, let alone this last like six month period. Um, and to have something like that for your manager or new manager or peer reviewer seems huge. So it's cool to hear that, that something like that was something you were doing at Uber and, you know, possibly that contributed to your ability to be so thoughtful about your transition to the M3 team, which is really cool. Yeah. And I mean, no one's going to be upset at you for making their job easier. You know, it's like if, if I'm reviewing someone's like promotion packet or whatever it is, like, you know, like the, the biggest question I have is like this person really performing at the level they're saying they are, did they really do the things that they said? And if you give me like a gigantic brain dump in a document form, that's like, here's links to all the evidence of everything I've done and why it was important and all that impact. I mean, that just, it just makes that person's life really easy. They're not going to be like, Oh, look at this guy bragging, trying to get a promotion. I mean, no one's going to think that. All right. I got to start my brag doc. Yeah, you should put this podcast on the, on the yeah, podcast. yeah, extracurricular activities. 
do it. 